0: Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! My name is Sean Sears, and the lead pastor. And I want to thank you for being a part of our service this weekend. Whether you are in Avon, Braintree, Bridgewater, or somewhere else in the world watching online, thank you for being a part of our services. We're in the third week of a four-week series uh, called Christmas Classics, where we're looking at different Christmas carols. And uh, how many guys feel like it's starting to get spring again already? Anybody? A little bit warmer this this weekend. Um, I'd like to ask a question. Just I want to see who's in here. How many of you guys uh, have not started your Christmas shopping yet? Raise your hand. Um, Proud. Wherever you're at, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. These are my peeps. So I'm just glad you're here. I'm thankful to Jesus for Amazon. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Amazon is the answer to my Christmas prayers this year. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, haven't, I haven't started yet. I'm just thankful for that, that, prime, that prime shipping is what I'm thankful for to make sure that stuff gets here uh, on time. I am, I am glad that you guys are, are here each week. We've been going over a different Christmas carol and then showing uh, the passage of Scripture that that Christmas carol comes from and then teaching from that passage of Scripture. In the first week of this series, we did Oh Holy Night and uh, uh, talked about how that was started, uh, kind of like dramatic and, and everything back. In the the mid 1800s, uh, by a disaffected Catholic uh, who was no longer a church-going man, didn't know if he believed in God anymore. He was a Parisian lawyer who whose parish priest from his childhood asked him to uh, write, write write a song. And uh, uh, then it was trans. Excuse me. Then then the music that was composed for it was by his uh, Jewish friend. And when the Catholic Church found out that uh, somebody who wasn't a church-going person wrote this song and that it was composed by a Jewish person, they they tried to put the kibosh on the song, but but by then the song had kind of spread, and it was the first song uh, ever played on the radio in all of human history uh, over in Marshfield, uh, Massachusetts, uh, by Thomas Edison's assistant. Like it's it's got a crazy history. And then last week, this the song was uh, "O Come, All You Faithful," and that was about the, uh, the the angels calling the shepherds to come and come and see Jesus, and uh, um. Uh, how how that, that song is like there's a whole lot of confusion behind it, so there wasn't much of a story to tell. And and this week our song is uh, "Away in a Manger." Um, in my opinion, this song is the most most commonly sung. And when I think of Christmas songs, uh, "Away in a Manger" is the first song that, that I think of. Uh, and and uh, it doesn't have a very dramatic dramatic beginning at all. The guy who wrote it, William Kirkpatrick, uh, that his job was just writing hymns. Uh, for the Evangelical Methodist Church, and that was his full-time job. So he was his job was just to keep churning out songs, keep churning out songs, and and composing music to them, and putting them in books so that they could be sent to all the different choirs of all of these different Methodist churches. And the Away in a Manger song um, he wrote to be included in a children's in a, in a children's uh, uh, so- a song book. And that's that's all there is to the story. And uh, like I was really disappointed, and I was like, let's find some dirt on Away in a Manger. Like, let's, like, I want to see some drama, let's get some bloodshed, let's, like, get, like, some Da Vinci Code drama, like that first song had, like, right? Like, I want, I want, like, a little bit more drama with my Christmas. Um, (laughs) That's what in-laws are for. Um, But truthfully, there's, 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 there's nothing, like, there's, there's no, there's nothing awesome about the origins of this song. I mean, like you want it to be like a little bit dramatic and stuff when it's not. And truthfully, it probably has more in common with the birth of Jesus For that fact, Uh, you know up in heaven all the angels when they, you know, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the very first book of the Bible, um, one of the very first scenes of all of eternity, right, or or time at least, right, Um, God says to to Adam and Eve and and Satan in the Garden of Eden that someday a, a baby would be born to a woman only, And then he says to Satan, you you will kill him, but in his death he will destroy and take away your authority and and evil's authority in in the world. That's in the very, like the third chapter of the whole Bible. That someday there would be a baby who was born to a woman. Uh, Only time in the whole Bible where a baby is referred to as the seed of a woman and not the seed of a man. And we know biologically that that's impossible, which is what's hinted there in that that chapter, anyway, but that that baby would born and then die, and then in his death he would take away the the, the like all like evil, evil in, in the world. So the angels knew that this baby was going to be, like John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So and, uh, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Uh, uh, and and the, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made. So like the word of God becomes flesh and dwelt, dwells among, among mankind. So all, for all of history from, from uh, let there be light all the way until away in the manger, the angels are actually waiting for God to like enter the human story. And and you know that in their minds, like the angels have minds, I mean they have free will, we know that a now I'm getting into like all kinds of rabbit trails. But according to Ezekiel, a third of the angels rebelled against the authority of God. And that's where demons come from. And I'm not trying to get all into all of that. But <clears throat> my point is they have minds. They have free will. They have thought. Right? So like angels, you know, like they knew that God was going to enter the human story. And probably some of them like imagined what that would be like. And were are hoping it would be a whole lot more dramatic than what it, like 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 grand, like grandiose and spectacular than, than what it actually was. The fact that he would be born to parents who were disgraced, right, like in a cave full of cow poop and urine, like in a feeding trough, uh, like, like outdoors with with nobody there to see it except for, like, common sinners. Like, we talked about that last week that, like, the shepherds, they were, like, the, the lowest of the, the caste, right, the, the lowest class of people. They were, like, when the Bible talks about publicans and sinners, it would have been thieves, prostitutes, and shepherds because shepherds were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go to temple and stuff, and they didn't care. They, it was a job. So, like, it was like the, the like, that's, that's who gets to see it. And, you know, the angels were like, really? Like, like, that's it? So, like, because of that, maybe this song is, like, the origins of this song perfectly match uh, the beginning of, of the life of of, of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> we're, in, we're in Luke chapter 2 today uh, in this way away in the manger. And last week I had referenced 1 through 7 where Jesus shows up uh, at, uh, it, in, in the cave uh, to, a, to a mom who, uh, by the way, everybody knew wasn't married to Joseph yet. And when she gets pregnant, the fact that Joseph didn't have her... Like excommunicated from the Jewish community, or truthfully, if he wanted to press it to law, according to the law of Moses, according to the Torah, she should have been taken to outside the city gates and stoned to death. And Joseph, being her uh, fiancé, uh, should have been the first one to throw the, the first rock, is how that would have gone down. And the fact that he didn't press charges, you know, gave, like, evidence to everybody that he was the one who knocked her up before they were married. And they were trying to hurry up and get married. But, like, like that's, that's the scandal around them right like it's like like the whole thing is just it's awkward and uncomfortable that's that's the story so uh, in, in the in the first week we talked about the attitude of god behind the Christmas story that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. It said that there are three characteristics of the nature of God that made Christmas possible, and these characteristics that are in God that made Christmas possible need to also be in you. Last week we looked at the first of those characteristics is that you need to be willing to die to your rights. The second thing that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, the second characteristic of God that made Christmas possible, is that Jesus was willing to put himself in a position to serve. That's where we're at in Luke chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to read. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. If this is your first time here, uh, I'm kind of starting in the middle of the Christmas story and uh, because you're in the middle of the series, so I can't give the last two weeks sermon like in in a row to catch you up, but they're they're online if if you'd like to do that. So we're in the middle of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, after seeing him, uh, Jesus, the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all of these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, uh, and it was just as the angel had told them. End scene. The very next verse is actually... Eight days later. Now, not to ruin Christmas, uh, you, but you already know this if you've been here uh, b- b- like in the last couple of weeks. But the, there's no wise men in the actual Christmas story. And I'm not trying to be Scrooge for you. Uh, but when the wise men show up, the Bible says they found Mary and the baby in a house so by the time the wise men get there, it's at least more than eight days later because what happens next chronologically in the story of Christmas is what we're going to be looking at this, this, uh, today. So uh, verse, verse uh, 21 is where we're at. Eight days later. So this is like the next scene. Eight days later. When the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given to him uh, by the angel even before he was conceived. And it was the angel Gabriel who had come to Joseph uh, because when, when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel also that she was uh, going to be with child, and then she said, whatever God uh, wants to happen, I'm, I'm cool with, um, then, then she, she's pregnant now, like miraculously pregnant. She tells her husband, I'm, I'm miraculously pregnant. And he's like, uh, do tell. Do tell. And she's like, there's an angel, and he goes, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not smoking that, right? Like that's, the, he didn't believe it. And so the Bible says that he had made a decision to divorce her privately and not publicly shame her because he, he was a good man. Uh, he, he didn't want to press charges publicly. He wasn't going to have her killed, although that was his right under the, under the, the Mosaic law. Uh, but he also wasn't going to marry her because, he, he, number one, he didn't believe her story. Right and and number two, uh, she'd already had sex with another man in his mind, and she's lying about it. So he didn't he didn't want to marry her. Like that was that would be probably your reaction also. Okay, probably if if your girlfriend came up and told you I'm pregnant, and, but I haven't had sex with another man. Uh, an angel visited me. Uh, <laughs> you go. Nah, sorry, you're stealing that story. I know you are. That's not that's not real. Um, and I want my ring back is what you would say, which is exactly what he, what he said. And it was the angel that had said, uh, don't be afraid to take her as your wife because what she's told you is true. And when he's born, you will name him Jesus, which is the name that he names him. And Jesus now is like a rock star name. like You probably didn't name, like nobody names, I, I don't want to say nobody names their kid Jesus uh, because... And this isn't like, like, this is an actual cultural thing. Mexicans are the only ones allowed to name their babies Jesus. And I don't know why that's a rule. But nobody else named their kids Jesus. They just, they just don't. There's like, there's, I've not met a Puerto Rican. Like, it's not just Latinos. Like, for some, like it's just not a common thing. We don't name our, our baby. And some of you guys are really uncomfortable because I said Mexican. But that's not a racist word. You guys know that, right? Okay, that's a country, and for whatever reason, only that country is allowed to name their baby Jesus. And I don't, okay, it's not a real rule, but it feels like a rule. I didn't name my kid Jesus, and neither did you, right? And if you did, it's probably because you're, anyway, now it's starting to feel racist, so I should just keep moving on because I'm getting uncomfortable now, all right? But I'm just saying, like, Jesus, that's a big name, right? You're like, you just don't, like, throw out names. Like, you don't, you ain't gonna name your kid LeBron, like you put, your, you put a kid like LeBron on your kid's name and like he better not be a nerd or he's going to have a very hard life, right? Like you give your kid like LeBron, like, like, like you, you see what I'm saying? Like if you name your baby like Tom Brady jo- you know, jo- Johnson or whatever your last name is, like you can't do this. Like these, are, these names are too, too big. Right? Like, Jesus' name is that now. Like, you just can't, like, 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 if you, you just can't say, my kid's name is Jesus Sears. They go, like, who do you, what, what? Like, that's, you're not allowed to do that. Like, I think even the doctors in the hospital would say, you can't name your baby Jesus Sears. Like, that, that's what they would say. Right? Maybe? I don't know. Okay, but back then, Jesus was not like an unusual, like, now it's an unusual name. Then, it was as common as Joe, Bill, or John. The, the name Jesus is Yeshua, right, which is, like, in Hebrew is, like, we would translate that as, in fact, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah don't call him Jesus. They call him Yeshua, his Hebrew name, which we translate into English as, do you know, Joshua. Like, it, that's all the name is. So in Hebrew, the name is Joshua. In Greek, the name is Jesus. And it was a very common name. Because of the hero Joshua who took over from Moses after Moses died, it was Joshua who led the children of Israel into the promised land. So a lot of people named their baby Jesus, which was the Greek word for Joshua. A lot of Jewish families named their baby Yeshua because he was like just like they would name their baby Da- David or like Joseph or however they would pronounce that in in Hebrew because these are heroes in the Jewish narrative and and Joshua Jesus's name Yeshua was was a like here's your messiah bill is essentially what what that was so even his name was un- unbelievably common, and you would think that, like, if the Messiah is going to show up, all the angels in heaven are waiting for, like, one of those one name, like those one, those one name names, you know what I'm saying? Like, like Cher, like Cher don't need a last name, because she's Cher. Are you with me? Like Bono, Bono, Coolio, Coolio don't need a last name. He's Coolio, right? Like, 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 are, are you guys with me on this? You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's, like, some people, like, they don't need a last name. They get, like, a rock star, Awesome first name, they don't need a last name. And then the angels in heaven, they're waiting for like Joseph to name his baby like a like a cool, like like a Kanye. Like Kanye don't need a lot, he's got a last name, but I don't need to tell you what his last name. If I say Kanye, you know exactly. If I say Bia, you know who I'm talking about. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? Okay, he gets, but Jesus, like so. All the angels up in the heaven are, are, are waiting for like Joseph to give him a name, and the name is Bill. Here's your Messiah, Bill. It's unbelievably ordinary. Now, paleoanthropologists have studied human remains from that period of time. And if Jesus was an average-sized man, according to the Bible, that, in fact, I want to show you the Bible verse, Isaiah chapter 53. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, here's what it says Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 My servant, this is a, it's commonly known to be a, a chapter that is a prophetic reference to the Messiah when he shows up. Uh, verse 2 My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or mag- majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So, on top of having a name like Bill, he wasn't even a pretty baby. Is that what the Bible says, yes or no? Yes or no? Are we going to be <laughs> you guys are like, you're, you're, you're like, this is blasphemy. <laughs> All right, you already ruined Christmas with the wise men. Now you're ruining the beautiful baby Jesus. Like there's nothing about him that was attractive, according to the Bible, or nothing, there's nothing beautiful about him. Or anything that would attract us to him. So he would not have stood out in any way. He, was an, he had an average name and he had average looks. And what we know from paleoanthropologists is that, the, and I'm about to ruin Jesus for you right now. Is that the average Jewish man at that time in human history was five foot one. Which means that Jesus was this big. I, you guys are laughing. You're laughing at the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus, you guys are like, nah. This now you're just being funny. No, stop. <laughs> not fun. Like serious. Like this blew my mind this week. I'm like in my head, like Jesus got long flowing like like this is the Jesus we're all comfortable. That's not the biblical Jesus. It's it's not the biblical Jesus. And in fact, uh, you the anthro a- anthro excuse me, paleo anthropologists have actually put together a sketch. Of what they actually believe Jesus probably looked like. And I, I think we've got a screenshot of that. And I, and I want to show you. And truthfully. Uh, that's not a bad looking dude. So according to the Bible. that That's better looking than some of you guys. So I don't even know if that's accurate. <laughs> so the Bible says there's nothing attractive about the man. Truthfully. That might have been a more attractive version, but I don't believe that Jesus had long hair because uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And how could a Jewish man in the first century uh, Judea say that it's shameful for a man to have long hair if Jesus... Had long it doesn't that that would have been a contradiction does that make sense so I don't Jesus according to the script he would have had a beard the Bible talks about his beard being plucked out when he was being tortured to death uh, uh, thir- 33 years later after the away in the manger but so he, he would have had a beard but he would have, he would have had he would have had short hair so the truth is that that picture is probably more accurate to what Jesus actually looked like and he was only this tall. So he wasn't this, you know, H&M (laughs) model-looking white guy with blue eyes. uh, That that wasn't him. He was as ordinary and as common, if anything, a little below average in physical appearance. He would have had rough hands, not smooth hands, because he was a first-century carpenter who did not have the advantages of going to the lumber yard to get wood, if he wanted wood, he had to chop down a tree. He had to plane it himself to build things. And anything that he needed to put together, he would have had to use one of them corkscrew drills. And then he would have had to make one of those wooden pegs and fit it in there. And like you guys know, like like the Amish way, that kind of stuff. And and like like his, he wasn't that skinny, emaciated guy either. He was... He was, he was this big, he was not physically attractive in any way, and he was dirt poor, and he was born in circumstances that were shameful to his disgraced parents, and he would have been picked on by all of the other conservative Jewish kids in synagogue, and been called the word for an illegitimate son his whole life. Why would he do that? If God's going to show up in human history, then why does he intentionally disadvantage himself in every possible way? Because of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He put himself in a position to serve. That's why he did it. Mark chapter 10 talks about this. This is Jesus In in, in Mark chapter 10, I want to read this passage of Scripture to you. Let me get there myself. In Mark chapter 10, it says in verse 45, I'm almost there. For even the Son of Man came not to be what served, but to what? Serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because from day one, he didn't want anybody giving anything to him. Because he didn't come to take anything. He came to give and to serve. When he walked into a room, he didn't command anybody's attention because he wasn't demanding it. You know what I'm saying? Like when he walked into a room, he looked for the people who needed him to be in the room. Are you with me? That's the way he entered the scene. He came on the bottom so that everybody would be above him because it was all of them He intended to carry every single one. It says back in Luke chapter 2, let me go back there in Luke chapter 2, that it was on that eighth day that he was given the name Jesus and he was also circumcised. And in this circumcision, he was placed under the Mosaic law, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that was based on if-then. If you do this, then God will do this. If you don't do this, then God won't do this. It was a relationship with God that was based on our ability to perform for God, which the Scripture says God gave to us because we were so proud, we thought we could make it on our own, and he gave us that covenant to prove to us how broken we actually were. Not so that we would feel worse about ourselves, so that we would constantly maintain an attitude of humility in the presence of God. Because when we looked at our lives against the Ten Commandments and saw that we had broken all ten of them this last week, there was no way in the world we would even dare to be presumptuous in his presence. That's why he gave us the law, so that we would recognize who is God in our lives and who isn't. That's why he gave us this. So Jesus comes underneath the Abrahamic, what Christians would refer to as the Old Covenant. The word for that is Testament, the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Arrangement, that the scripture said all along was temporary. In fact, it was Isaiah who had said that the covenant that God had made with Abraham was temporary, and that when the Messiah came, he would give. The Messiah, and it was Jesus who kept 100% of all of the law, all, all 10 of the commandments and the other, and, the, and, and like I think there's like 100 and something other commandments in, in the Torah, and Jesus kept 100% of every single one of them. And the Bible says that he kept all of God's laws on our behalf so that he could be the one person in all of human history who actually earned immunity from God for sin. And then offers that immunity to those of us who have committed sin and become guilty in exchange for our guilt. There's a whole reason why he came. Paul talks about this circumcision in Romans chapter 3, and here's what Paul says about the circumcision. He says in Romans chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 2, verse 25, he says, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's laws, which nobody did. They all broke it. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. He says, so the circumcision only has value if you're able to keep all of the rules. Romans chapter 3 had, goes on to say that nobody actually does keeps all the rules, not even one person. Uh, Gods de- It says Romans chapter three verse 10, you can look at it. It's just the next chapter over. It says there's no one good, not even, not even one person. Be- now, you, know, you and I would say, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, because I'm a, I'm a good person, and you call yourself a good person because you're comparing yourself to really, really bad people, right? You're not calling yourself a good person because, according to right, Mother Teresa, you're good? Because according to Mother Teresa, you and I are both scumbags. Compared to her, she lived among lepers her whole life, and you and I live near malls. I don't think that qualifies, right? So you're only good in relation to who you measure yourself against. So when God sees us, who's he measuring us against? Not, e- not each other. Who's he measuring us against? The example he set for us when he showed up in the manger. He measures us against Jesus. And so he says, against Jesus, none of you are good, not even one. And so because you've broken the law, your circumcision doesn't earn you any credit. Because when you stand before God on judgment day and he says, are you innocent or guilty of breaking my laws? You will still have to say, I'm guilty. And if God is good, he can't let guilty people go free. Your sins must be paid for. And if your sins separate you from God and you enter eternity separated from God, you spend eternity the exact same way, separated from God. So then what good is your circumcision if you're still going to break the commandments? That's the point Paul's making. Back at it. Verse 26. And if the Gentile obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? So if they keep all the commandments... Uh, In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but didn't keep it. Verse 28, for you are not a Jew, a true Jew, just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. So the circumcision marks you as somebody who's obligated to the law, but it doesn't give you any extra credit before God. That's what it doesn't do. Noah, true Jew, verse 29, is one whose heart is right with God because that's what it's been about all along. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from other people. The purity that God expects is not your attempt to earn his love by keeping the commandments. The purity that he's looking for is a purity of heart, the kind of heart that recognizes when it's done wrong, it grieves over the wrong that it's done. And it grieves in such a way that it turns from that and calls on God in humility, which is what the law was intended to do anyway, was to make me humble. Why? Because it positions my heart under the authority of God. God says, that's what I've been looking for all along. People who recognize they're broken and need me, That's what I'm looking for. That was the point of circumcision. A physical reminder that you have cut away your physical flesh, which was supposed to have been a symbol of your willingness to put away your sinful spiritual flesh in order to live underneath my authority. But you guys made it more about the ritual than about the heart. And you got it wrong, Paul says. He goes on to say in verse uh, chapter 9, skip up to chapter 9, here's what he says also. And in verse 24, he says this, and we among those, and we are among those whom God has selected, and go back to chapter 8, verse 29, on your own time, if you want to see who God selects, uh, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, and this this is those who are non-Jewish, and this is a Jewish prophet in the, in, in the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew word for Bible, what Christians would refer to as the Old Testament. So in the Hebrew Bible, a, a Hebrew, a Jewish prophet says this about the Gentiles. Uh, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people and I will love those whom I did not love before. Skip down to verse 30. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. How were they made right with God? It was by faith that this took place. Those Gentiles or Jews or anybody who comes to the place where they recognize that before a holy and righteous God, I am guilty and sinful. Those who by faith will accept that the away in the manger baby grows up to become the one innocent sacrifice that God sent on your behalf to rescue you from your brokenness, whose death pays off your debt and whose resurrection gives you an opportunity for a new shot at life, those people are the ones who are made right with me. Why? Because they were better than other people? No. Because Jesus was better than other people and they put their faith and trust in him. See, a lot of people believe in God, but they don't believe in God enough to trust God with the rest of their life. So they'll say I'm a good person in comparison to other people and I recognize that God exists. But they don't trust God enough to offer to follow him with the rest of their life. I want to put God in a, in a pocket on the weekends and I'll give God an hour and a half. But I'm not going to give him my marriage. I'm not going to give him my sexuality. I'm not going to give him my career. I'm not going to give him my finances. I'm not going to give him my reconciliation with those who've hurt me in my past. I'm not going to give him those things. Those are mine. I will do with them what I want. And God says, "You're like those, and it's circumcision. It's physical. That's you you give me this little piece on the weekends. But what I wanted all along was was your heart, and you never you never gave me that." He says. What does all this mean, Uh, verse 30? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place, verse 31, but the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the rules, and this is a lot of my friends who really do believe in God and are trying really hard to be good enough to make it to heaven, and truthfully, that's some of you, if I were to ask you, if you died right now, would you spend eternity in the presence of God? You would say, I hope so. And I'd say, what do you mean you hope so? Like, I'm trying to be a good person. That's what he's talking about. People who are trying to make it to God by being a good person. Here's what he says. The people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by doing what? Keeping the law instead of by what? Trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock that was in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, and this is a Hebrew verse. From the Hebrew Bible, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anybody who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So in the circumcision, what Jesus was doing is he was placing himself under the Hebrew, under the Hebrew law, is what he was doing, to keep the law for all of mankind. And according to that passage of scripture, Jesus becomes the bridge between Jews and Gentiles in both of their attempt or their need to be reconciled to the God who created them both. And the way that he shows up to do this is in extreme poverty, in a family covered in disgrace, no doubt picked on his entire childhood because of the circumstances of his birth, economically disadvantaged who, according to scholars, because of the way it's written in chapter, when he was 12 years old, his his father, his stepfather, Joseph, is never mentioned again, whose dad probably died when he was a young teenager, who would have had the responsibility of providing for his mother and his little brothers and sisters. There's at least seven of them. Because we know the names of five of Jesus' half-brothers, and the Bible says he had sisters. That's plural, so there's at least two, which means that Jesus was in a blended family, Right? He was the oldest of at least eight kids. Mary had seven other kids according to the scriptures. And he would have been responsible. Like, this is a hard, hard life that he lived. He did all of this according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for one reason. And that is because he absolutely adores you. I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 4 is where I'm going to read. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this. This high priest of ours, referring, referring in, in the first part of that chapter, talks about Jesus being our high priest. And by the way, I think this is beautiful. Jesus is named Joshua. It's just the Greek word for Joshua is Jesus, right? So his name is Joshua. Joshua is the one who succeeded Moses. Jesus is the one who brought the new covenant, which succeeded the Mosaic covenant. The next time, there's only two other Joshuas mentioned in the whole Bible. The first one is the one who succeeds Moses and takes God's people into the promised land. Jesus is the one who succeeds the law of Moses, who takes us into the presence of God, right? Then the only other Joshua that's ever mentioned is the first high priest under the new temple. And Jesus becomes our first and only high priest under the new covenant. Just kind of cool that those are the only two Joshua's mentioned in the entire Bible. But it goes on to say, verse, verse 15, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. You know why Jesus was intentionally disadvantaged? You know why he was intentionally picked on as a kid? You know why he was intentionally struggling to provide for his family as a child? You know why he lost his childhood and had to provide for his family before he could even, right, finish school? You know why he did all of that? You know why he intentionally wasn't attractive? You know why intentionally he was born into a poor family? So there wouldn't be a single person in this room he couldn't connect with. He was rejected by his family, picked on by people, abused, betrayed by friends, reject all of that, absolutely no advantages, so that when you get to the place where you are most broken in life, and you reach out to God, he knows how you feel. That's why. For one reason. So that he could feel what you feel. So that he could love you well. That's why he did that. And truthfully, his willingness to come in the manger and position himself to serve is a model for each one of us. First Corinthians puts it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can what? Comfort others. When they are troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. He says, and so, the truth is, some of you guys are going through things right now. And your prayer is, God, take this away from me. And God's hope is that your prayer would change to, God, take me through this so that you can help others through me. Our problem is that we don't look at our problems as God putting us in a position to serve. I don't want to serve. I don't want to serve the greater good. I don't want to serve a greater God. I want God to serve my purposes. I want pain to go away. I want a life of comfort. Truthfully, I don't want to be stretched, and I don't want to be put in a position where I have to need God. And if that's the way God lets me go, I'll never have faith in him because I never needed to trust him. God calls us to follow this same pattern. And he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that everything that he's given to us, and we don't have time for these next three passages of scripture, everything that he's given to us, he's given to us to be leveraged for his glory and for the good of others. First Timothy chapter 6, he says, tell those who are rich in this world, Not to trust in the riches, which can disappear in 2008. If it's in the, right? (laughs) It can disappear in 2008 if it's in real estate. It can disappear in, like, 2001 if it's in the stock market. Don't put your trust in that. While you've got it, use it for my kingdom purposes and for the good of others. Put your trust in me, he says. In Luke chapter 6, he says, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Put yourself in a position to serve. Love those who don't love you back. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, Take the opportunity to do good to everyone, especially those who are of the family of faith. My life is not my own. I've been given my life, my assets, my resources as tools to be leveraged, not as idols to be worshiped. Everything I own is a tool or an idol. It's something that I will gladly use to serve God's kingdom purposes and the needs of others, or it's something I won't leverage because I put too much value on it, and it has now become an idol in my heart. And the ironic thing is some of us are praying for God to give us more of what we worship more than him. Why would God increase your idolatry? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. And you won't do this unless you're able to give up your rights. And in order to do this, you're going to have to put yourself in a position to serve. Like Jesus, and here's the hope. Like Jesus, your beginning doesn't determine your ending. Some of you come from really horrible situations. Some of you just recently. And these things in the eyes of God have never defined you. Those are the sinful things done to you or done by you that have kept those who did them or you who've done them separated from him. And when we humble ourselves, confess this as sin, repent of it, and accept that Jesus' immunity covers even that, we can head a different direction. Jesus' beginning didn't determine his ending Your beginning doesn't have to determine your ending either. I've got a few questions for you as we wrap up. Number one is this. Who do you have a hard time serving? Here's (laughs) You're either going to follow Jesus or you're not. When I say, who do you have a hard time serving, what name popped into your head? And if you're going to put this teaching into practice, I want you to write down in your communication one thing you will do to bless them this next week. And I don't see anybody writing anything down, so I don't. Let's just wrap this bad boy up. We're not doing anything with this sermon this week because it's too uncomfortable. Who do you have a hard time serving? Because honestly, if you're going to follow Jesus, that's the person Jesus would want you to show love to first. The person you least want to. Because when you least deserved it, he gave it to you, didn't he? Yes or no? How can we take from him what we are not willing to give to others? Number two, how might God be using the struggle you're in today to serve others tomorrow? What struggle are you in right now? Can you change your prayer from God take this away from me to God take me through this and bless others through me? Can you make that your prayer? Last, what if your next step is to do what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 to 17? This is the last, no it's not. <laughs> I said this is the last verse we're looking up. I'm, I'm lying. Matthew chapter 3. I want you to see Jesus. Here's what he does. Because Jesus establishes a new way of marking ourselves under a new covenant. The old covenant was marked by circumcision, which was a, the male cutting away of the flesh. If you don't know what that is, do not Google it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, ask me after the service or your location, pastor. Don't ask them. That will be incredibly uncomfortable. Um, I don't even know what to tell you if you don't know what to. Can I'm just going to move on again. Let's just move on is what we're going to do. So the cutting away of the flesh marks you as being under the first covenant. Jesus gives us a second marking for the second covenant because what God wanted all along was our heart. So the second marking, the second circumcision, is a spiritual circumcision. The first one was a cutting away of our physical flesh. The second circumcision, the one under this new covenant, is a putting to death our flesh. The person we used to be. That's this one, and Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, then Jesus, verse 13, went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it because he knew Jesus had no sin to repent of. That's what this baptism was for. John was preaching the repentance of sin. Right? So so Jews had been like it was it was the keeping of the law that makes us right with God. John came preaching faith that made us right with God for breaking the law. So John was offering them a different spiritual cleansing, which was a repentance of sin. Jesus shows up to be baptized by John, baptized, which just it's not a religious, it's a religious word now. Kind of like Jesus is like a holy name now. Back then it was just like Bill. Baptism for us is like a holy word, but back then, the word baptism just means dunk. Actually, the oldest use of the word baptizo in all of human history was a recipe for pickles. It just meant put the cucumber under magic angel juice. And it becomes a pickle. I don't know how you make pickles. But the first, the, first, the first use of the word baptizo was not in reference to religion at all. It just meant to put under. So when Jesus comes to be put under the water to bury the sinful man, John the Baptist knows Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one who had never broken a single one of the commandments. And he knew Jesus had no sin to repent of and no flesh that separated him from God that needed to be put away. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he tries to talk him out of this. And he says, this isn't for you. Like, this, that doesn't like what are you, what are you doing? This, like I know who you are, and this doesn't work for you. And here's Jesus' response. Um, verse 14, but John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? And Jesus said, um, verse 15, it should be done because we must carry out all that God what? All that God what? Requires, And then Jesus is what? Baptized. There's a cool story about the stuff that happens after that's referenced in the other Gospels that we're not going to read for the sake of time. But we're going to go to Romans chapter 6. Two other verses and we're done. Romans chapter 6. And here's the other verse about, about this second circumcision. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 through 7 says, for we died and were buried with Jesus. How, was I, how did I die and was buried with Jesus? When, when, when did I die and was buried with Jesus? Paul answers that question. For we know, excuse me, for we died and were buried with Christ by what? Baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live what? New lives. Baptism is my conscious choice after turning from sin and placing my faith and trust in Jesus to take them away. After accepting his death, burial, and resurrection, pays off my debt before God and gives me a new standing, new life with God. After I say I do, I put on the wedding ring. After I go all in as a follower of Jesus, I demonstrate what my faith has been placed in that makes me right with God. So I stand in the water. And when I'm standing in the water, according to the scriptures, It's a picture of Jesus standing on the cross for me. When I say when Jesus was on the cross, he was taking the punishment that I deserved. When we go underwater, what we're saying is when Jesus died, he died for me. And when we come out of the water, we're saying that when Jesus rose from the dead with new life, he rose from the dead to give me new life. And I'm letting go of the man I used to be. That's what this is. I'm burying the old life, and from now on, I'm devoting myself to follow Jesus, not by keeping the rules, but by keeping my heart clean. Every time I break the rules, I repent of that, and I recognize my heart is Teflon. It don't stick to me anymore, it doesn't. It's there, I wipe it off with repentance, it's Teflon, I'm I'm coded, I'm coded. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, covers me and keeps it off that's what this is for according to the scriptures keep reading uh verse verse five since we have been united with him in his death we will also be raised to life as he was we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with christ that's what i'm doing when i'm when i'm standing in the water i'm putting to death my old sinful self so that sin might lose its power in my lives We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And what I'm doing is the day that I turned from sin to follow Jesus, I was set free from my sin. The day I'm baptized is the day I bury it. Are you with me? Some of you guys have been forgiven of sin, but you ain't walked away from it yet. And you've been dragging that dead, rotten corpse around with you. And I know on the authority of the Bible, demonstrated by the example of Jesus himself, that you're going to keep smelling that stench until you get rid of the person you used to be. And I know that for some of you guys, your next step is to be baptized. And you'll say, but I've already been baptized. You're baptized as a baby. And I would say that was a demonstration of whose faith, yours or your parents? Your parents'. And maybe now it's time for you to stop living off of borrowed faith. And maybe today you start owning it for yourself and bring this picture full circle. This doesn't undo anything that your mom and dad ever intended for you. If they baptized you as a baby, it was a demonstration of their faith, hope, and confidence that someday you would be a person of faith. And now you have the opportunity to say, I have Everything my mom and dad hoped for in my life as a kid, I now have accepted on my own as an adult. Here's what Paul goes on to say, and this is the last verse we're looking at, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 says in verse 11 and 12, When you came to Jesus, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. When did this happen? Verse 12. Verse 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were, what? Baptized. My baptism doesn't make me a child of God. My baptism doesn't save me from sin. I am saved, according to Ephesians chapter 2, by the grace of God through faith in God's Son, Jesus. Just like I'm married the day I say I do. The wedding ring has no magic power in it. This water over here has no magic power in the water. Like we've, we're doing a baptism service this weekend. We do this three times a year. That's it, just three times a year there's no special there's there's no special water in in the in the the baptism baptism tank um, uh, in in either location. both baptism tanks were filled uh, by a, a hose bought at Home Depot from a tap. It probably has bacteria in it I don't know it, it ain't holy water don't drink it don't drink it right but but so there's nothing but this ring has no magic ability, and it loses all significance outside of a pre-existing covenant relationship with the person I made my covenant promise to. And I was married not when I put on the wedding ring. I was married when I said, what, two little words? I do. And I'm not saved the day I get baptized. I'm saved the day that I say, God, forgive me and save me. That's when I'm saved. That's my I do. God, I give you all of my life. I'm all in. I'm pot committed. All my chips in the middle. God, you have 100% of me. You have my heart for the rest of my life. Boom. In that moment, I'm brought into this new covenant purchased by the blood of Jesus. And then I mark myself with a new circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. And I symbolically bury the person I used to be through baptism. Now, we are going to have a baptism service today in in our our locations. And there are people who already were planning on this because they sat through a service like this back in September and and, and heard this. Or maybe they came to faith in Jesus at some point since then, but they know for a fact this is their next step and they're already planning to do this. But there are others of you that you're like, I know for a fact this is my next step but I, I didn't know that before I came. And so you're nervous if I'm going to ask you to get baptized, oh, I am going to ask you to get baptized right now. I'm, here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you if you are willing to go all in as a devoted father of Jesus. In a second, we're going to pray. And I'm asking you to turn from your sin, to accept that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that pays off the debt you owe God because of the things you've done wrong. I want you to ask him to forgive you and to save you from it. I want you to ask him to send his Holy Spirit to fill your heart and make you new. And I want you to demonstrate in a room full of people who will support you that you will follow Jesus. Because if you can't do it in this room, you won't do it outside of this room. All right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have everybody, if you would, please. uh, I was going to say stand up. Stay seated. (laughs) We're going to pray. If you would bow your head. God, I'm thankful for your way in the manger. I'm thankful that you showed up in the worst of circumstances to help us in the middle of ours. God, I'm thankful that you love me in spite of my sin. I'm thankful that you haven't stopped loving me even when I committed more of it. God, I'm thankful that you've been hurt so that you know how to love me when I'm hurt. God, I'm thankful. That you took my punishment for me. That you died for my sin so that I wouldn't have to be separated from God because of it. God, I'm thankful that you rose from the dead with new life so that that my sin wouldn't get the end of me, but that I would get new life also. And if that's your prayer, tell them, Jesus, I know why you came, I know why the way in the manger happened. I know you came to take away my sin. I know you came to earn immunity from God, and you're offering that. I want you, God, to forgive me. Forgive me for all of it. Take it away. Help me to follow you with the rest of my life. I want to do this. And you might say, I don't even know what this is going to look like or how hard it's going to be, but I'm telling you, I'm 100% committed to the process. Can you make that your prayer? God, save me. Make me new. Dear God in heaven, please take away my sin. Can you make that your prayer? God, I'm thankful for your love and the way that you love us in spite of the dumb things that we've done. Take away our sin. Make us new, God, please. That's my prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen.